Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. The Internet's true circulatory system lies deep underwater. Nearly 900,000 miles of fiber-optic cables snake across ocean floors, transporting the world's information, financial transactions, military and diplomatic traffic. American firms have dominated the cable-laying business since the start, but now China is entering the scene with one of the world's most advanced and far-reaching subsea cable networks. It's a $500 million undersea fiber-optic cable that would link Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. And it snapped the United States to attention. Here's Republican Congressman Brian Mast of Florida in March speaking about the bipartisan Undersea Cable Control Act, which passed the House. Chinese companies, heavily subsidized, of course, by the PRC, the communist government, have started investing heavily in owning and supplying subsea cables. Think things like voice communications, data, internet, trillions of daily international financial transactions, things that you don't want China getting a hold of. They weaponize every bit of social media that they can. They try to make these capabilities fit their own nefarious ends. So do we really think for a second that they would not do the same with undersea cables? I'm not going to be fooled into thinking that. The Chinese cable counted telecom giant Huawei Technologies as one of its shareholders. Robert Spaulding of the Hudson Institute told Bloomberg News that's a cause for concern. In Canada, for example, we've seen data be rerouted to China. We've also seen, for instance, uh, what happened with the Africa Union. So it's clear that Huawei has a pattern of, of behavior that shows data being moved to China. However, you won't hear such bellicose talk from Europe because France and Germany have already said they will not isolate China or diplomatically disparage Beijing, despite the risks feared by the United States. This is Emily Taylor of Oxford Information Labs. You don't take unnecessary risks, but there are many risks associated with taking a, a nationalistic view to technology. Um, it can potentially break the architecture of the internet. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The U.S. and China are already deep into a power struggle that will define the future. It's a race for silicon chips, rare earth minerals, 5G technology, artificial intelligence, space exploration, navies and air forces, consumer products and cultural influence. Now, as some have put it, there's a war under the waves. So how should we best understand the rising tensions over China's new undersea fiber optic cables, not just from the U.S. perspective, but from the world's? Well, Nicole Staroselsky joins us. She is a professor of media, culture, and communication at New York University and an expert in undersea fiber optic cables. She's author of the book, The Undersea Network. Nicole, welcome to On Point. It's great to be here. Also with us is Joseph Keller. He's a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology. Joe, welcome to you. Thanks so much for having me. So first, let me have you both describe really the extent and importance of these undersea fiber optic cables. I mean, Nicole, I, I understand that they carry, what, 95 to 99 percent of the world's internet traffic? 
Yes, when the internet goes between continents, it largely, 99% of the time, over 99% of the time, goes on the very bottom of the seafloor on undersea cables. They're integral to global communications. We don't have the internet as we know it today without them. Okay. And Joe, um, as I said earlier, the um, the United States and U.S. companies have um, basically had the lead on laying cable for a long time now. Um, but does describe a little bit more about how the, the networks work. Does it mean that uh, those companies essentially control what traffic goes through those cables? Uh, yes. So stakeholders come together to try to make investments in some of these uh, telecom projects. They involve 10, 12 individuals. It requires participation and cooperation between countries, between governments, and between companies, even though they do not share the same regions. Hmm. So, Nicole, I guess what I'm trying to understand before we get deep into what China is doing is, you know, trying to put the concerns that we we heard uh, in the intro, say, from example, Congressman Brian Mast into context. So right now, with all those basically U.S. owned uh, cables, um, are those U.S. tech companies then deciding what traffic goes where? Could they do the same things that the United States is accusing China of potentially doing with its uh, fiber optic uh, undersea cable? I think the threat is a little overstated. While certainly anyone who owns a subsea cable system could halt all the traffic on that cable system, monitor all the traffic on that cable system, that's not what they choose to do because that wouldn't be economically viable, that wouldn't be politically viable. There are, there are a lot of reasons that the system remains open as it is today. Okay, so does that mean that it would remain open? You believe it would remain open with uh, China's cable connecting, what, Asia, the Middle East, and Europe? I believe that that would be an open system that has traffic uh, transiting it in the same way that many other cables around the world do. Okay, so we'll talk more about that uh, uh, in a few minutes because, I mean, clearly we're doing this hour because not everyone is as confident, uh, uh, Nicole. So so tell us the story, and Joe, I'll turn to you on this, but I want to hear from both of you, about China's um, new fiber optic cable. It's called CMEWE6. What should we understand about it? So uh, this has been a very provocative issue. So earlier this year, around February, construction for a cable from France to Singapore, I think, is emblematic of these rising U.S.-China tensions because mainly it reports suggest that the U.S. has been sabotaging telecom deals like this with China for years. Tell me more. So uh, reports suggest that this is one of at least uh, six private undersea cable projects that have come together over the Asia-Pacific region. Um, You're right, as you mentioned before, it links a lot of territories, including landing stations on the continent of Africa. The, The thing here, though, is that several years ago when the project came together, the consortium of stakeholders agreed that the entity laying the cable, the fiber optic cable, would be a Chinese associated company. But Given the threat that U.S. perceived from associated Chinese companies laying the cable and foreign adversaries, they decided to undertake what has been seen as an influence campaign behind the scenes, providing favors, for example, through grants, training grants and money for individuals involved in participating in the stakeholders uh, to get them to flip their decisions. So individuals had decided that 
verbally, we would go with a Chinese cable layer, this case called HMN Tech. After this influence campaign, individuals, for many reasons, decided they would go with a U.S.-backed cable layer, an entity called Subcom. So that's where we are today. A story that started several years ago with a larger influence of Chinese backers and stakeholders now has a greater influence from the U.S. And in the intervening time, stakeholders from China have left that project and have struck out on their own to try to construct what has been seemingly seen as competing and uh, reactionary cables at the same time along along similar routes. Okay. Nicole, do you want to add to that? Because this seems to be, um, you know, kind of both a diplomatically complex and even technologically complex story that's unfolding. Yeah, I would just say that the subsea cable systems that, you know, the initial subsea cable system was had members of uh, many countries involved, not just China, and that these systems are typically have typically been what are called consortium systems. So there are consortia that have, uh, you know, the United States, U.S.-based companies, uh, France-based companies, uh, China-based companies, all collaborating together to lay these global kind of international projects. And so I think that, that it's important to keep that context in mind, that there's been a lot of collaboration in the industry and that this hasn't typically been something that, you know, governments have stepped in to moderate that international collaboration in the way that they're strongly doing now. Governments being, I mean, specifically the United States stepping in, Nicole? Specifically the United States. There's always been a role for governments, but this kind of action we've not seen before. Okay. Uh, Joseph Keller, do you want to add to that? No, I think... Nicole hit it right on the head. What what is essential here is the collaboration between countries, between governments. Because of the landing points of these cables, uh, permission is required for products to go forward. And and generally, all stakeholders stand to benefit from productive and successful execution of these projects. But given the specific stance that the U.S. has against China, It is creating tensions and difficulties for all projects that involve China, even for those who are not directly affiliated with it. Okay. Now, Nicole, um, I think Joe had mentioned this a minute ago, uh, that the U.S. has actually um, forced changes in fiber optic cable routing on several other projects in the Asia-Pacific region over the last several years. Did I hear that correctly? That's right. Yeah. So, so I mean, does that mean, Nicole, that there are, what, there's just like uh, uh, miles and miles of, of undersea fiber optic lying around not being used right now? Well, they were not constructed in the way that they had initially been planned, uh, either to China, uh, Chinese territory or to by Chinese suppliers. Okay. So, because the United States successfully just stopped the completion of those particular cables, but is but Joe is CME We Six, uh, the project that's um, you know really gotten all this public attention, is despite the United States' concern and actions as you outlined, is it still going forward? It is still going forward. Um, you mentioned this at the top. Uh, 
it's expected to be finished around 2025. And so this is a project that has been successful in going forward just without those Chinese stakeholders. Without those Chinese stakeholders. Okay, we're gonna, when we come back, I'm going to um, ask us to, to dig a little deeper and to clarify sort of exactly who all the stakeholders are, what the concern is from the United States, whether it's a valid one or not, and really what uh, this tension between the United States and China over those you know, seabed fiber optic cables, what does that mean for the rest of the world? So got a lot to tackle when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about rising tensions between the United States and China over undersea fiber optic cables. They carry 99% of the world's internet traffic, and China recently has uh, decided to get into the business of laying new fiber optic cable much to Washington's chagrin. So we're going to talk more about the geopolitical consequences in a few minutes. But we also wanted to understand a little bit about who lays the cable and what that's like. So Steve Arsenault is director of Global Sea Solutions for IT Telecom, a Canadian fiber optic cable laying firm. And he says people just don't realize that much of what they do on the Internet travels on the ocean floor. There is no doubt that a misconception exists that global communications are somehow facilitated by satellites, right? I mean, it's funny to me because, you know, you ask anyone, you know, what the signal path takes for a given trans-oceanic phone call, and almost no one will tell you that it's through an underwater cable. But the fact remains, there are literally thousands and thousands of kilometers of cable underwater just lying there. Well, Rick Chislett also works for IT Telecom, and he has spent 41 years on its cable-laying ships as the manager of splicing and testing. He's semi-retired now in Windsor, Nova Scotia, but he will be back out on the ocean off the coast of Denmark in a few days. So we talked with him and asked him what it's like laying fiber optic cable around the world. My responsibility was managing the splicing and testing on board. I also look after the loading up the vessels just to make sure that the cable is stored in a hole and in the correct manner. Today, I checked the crew manifest and on board our ship right now, there are 50 crew members and they are in transit to load cable and then it will proceed to Denmark. And in Denmark, there is more cable to be loaded. There'll be uh, testing and jointing, crew joining. 
on some projects when we lay close to shore where the cable can become damaged by fishing anchors we will need to bury it and we use a what we call a subsea plow and we tow this behind the vessel plow weighs roughly about 30 ton the cable will leave the ship go down to the seabed go through the plow and out the back end of the plow plow will create a trench depending on the seabed conditions how soft how hard it is it could bury to a maximum of two meters we were on a particular project about three years ago off the west coast of south america and the bottom conditions off the coast is very mountainous and uh, we were towing the sea plow behind us we came to an area where it was a downslope and normally on downslopes our survey team are able to identify them and the sea plow operators are able to slow it down but for some reason it didn't slow it down fast enough it overran the cable it damaged the cable at that time the plow overturned on its side so uh, the ship came to a complete stop the cable damage was repaired in probably I think about 20 hours and the plow damage took about two days we do get a lot of people who spend a lot of years out on the water and enjoy it the ship crew becomes something like a family you know everybody get along and that kind of thing and you have to because you're in a on a vessel that's only 115 meters long food is good which is always great for me i worked 40 plus years at this business and i feel that i helped to connect families together or people together from country to country I feel good about contributing that to the world. And I have to say, I've worked all over the world. That was Rick Chislett, former manager of splicing and testing for the Canadian company IT Telecom. He spoke with us from Windsor, Nova Scotia. Well, I'm also joined today by Joseph Keller. He's a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology. And Nicole Staroselsky, uh, she's a professor of media, culture, and communication at New York University and author of The Undersea Network. And, you know, um, I think I'd like to actually see if we can uh, clarify some of the murky relationships here to use a, a marine pun, if I could, um, that uh, that it that are needed in order to to lay these cables and and operate them um because i'm still i have to say i'm still not entirely certain how the united states managed to uh, to interfere with the laying of this new chinese cable so joe keller let's go back to april 2020 um and the trump administration when the the trump administration signed an executive order um that formalized something called the Committee for the Assessment of Foreign Participation in the United States Telecom Services Sector. Now, it's informally known as Team Telecom. What does Team Telecom do, Joe? 
I'm really glad you took the chance to describe that. Um, this is an interagency group that's run by the U.S. Department of Justice that makes recommendations to the Federal Communications Commission about the cables that are going to be landing on U.S. soil. Landing on U.S. soil. Okay. But this Chinese CMEWE-6 is not necess- It's not landing on U.S. soil, Correct. Correct. But I think the the U.S. has taken an increasingly aggressive stance. So not only for cables that are physically on U.S. soil, but also for cables that have indirect connection to uh, the U.S. through other company, through other countries and through other infrastructures. So the U.S. has this distrust of Chinese technology, Chinese infrastructure. And I, I think there's greater and greater steps taken by Team Telecom and other measures, acknowledging the increasing competitiveness with China, but also trying to distance themselves by any association with Chinese activities around cables. Okay, so Professor Staroselsky, then this gets us to the specifics of what Team Telecom, I believe, did around CMEWE 6, right? Because of, as Joe described, the in, the, even the indirect connection to the United States. I understand that they... The team targets, you know, Chinese-owned submarines, cables, um, and equipment, and then applies the kind of pressure that Joe talked about to get um, companies to withdraw their involvement from the cable laying. Do I have that right? So it's a bit more complex than that. Okay. So there are. So should I say that it's uh, seemingly six is not a Chinese cable per se. It's a cable that's laid by many companies uh, that many companies came together to lay. And so there's always pressure being enacted through various companies and the governments and the countries that they are a part of. Right. So this is a global project. It's an incredibly complex project. And they have to choose a supplier to build the cable. Right. So that's one of that's the point that a key pressure point in this process is who is going to actually manufacture and lay the cable across the ocean. Not necessarily who's going to own the cable or who, where the cable's going to land. And the question here is which company, and there are only a few companies in the world that lay cable. This is kind of one of those bottleneck kind of pressure points in the global communication system. So one of those, as Joe mentioned, is Subcom, a US-based company. Another is HMN Tech, which is a Chinese company, which used to be Huawei Marine. Mm. So the question was here, not necessarily should you know there be Chinese owners of this cable, but should there be a Chinese supplier of the cable? Should there be a manufacturer of the cable that is a Chinese company? And that's where the United States stepped in. Okay. And so it stepped in, and what happened then with, with HMN Tech? So what happened is that the, the consortium had to go with the with the US-based supplier, Subcom, right? So, and this is a, a move that has happened through pressure uh, on previous cable systems before this, both in the Asia Pacific, there was a transatlantic cable example where the Chinese supplier was set to get a contract and then the US put pressure on it. Everyone worried that, you know, there wouldn't be, that you wouldn't be able to sell capacity on that system. Um, that you wouldn't, because you know the U.S. the companies wouldn't be allowed to transit that system because it was made by a Chinese supplier. So the U.S. government um, put pressure on 
on the system sort of externally. And that prompted a change um, that was a part uh, kind of strategic change, but also an economic change because people are worried about this question of capacity and cost um, and being able to be a viable cable project. Uh-huh. Okay. So then if uh, HMN Tech is not the the cable layer for for this project. Joe, does that mean that, um, you know, the, the concerns that uh, that we shared from uh, various members of Congress and, I mean, Washington more generally at the top of the show, are they moot now? I think they're, they're largely addressed by moves like this. I'm not sure that they're moot, though. Uh, there, there were, in fact, reactions to this move, however, so after taking these steps to change the contractor, the supplier, as Nicole mentioned, the very important part of laying the cable, two Chinese stakeholders left the project. And this sort of tit-for-tat action and reactionary steps, I think these are the types of events that we'll see more often as the U.S. takes specific steps to, uh, to keep Chinese cables and infrastructure out of projects that they're involved with and use whatever methods that they have at their disposal. Mm. So what was the implication of those those Chinese stakeholders in leaving the project? The project obviously went, went together. They took with them about 20% of the investor capital. Um, but there was a cost in terms of what happened afterward. You mentioned before this cable, this Europe, Middle East, Asia cable. So so this is seemingly in response to the breakdown of a couple of Chinese stakeholders in launching a new project, one in direct competition with the previous cable project that they withdrew themselves from. And so this is something that uh, seems to mirror this competition. The U.S. is involved with building a cable and then uh, Chinese infrastructure builders forced and compelled to go elsewhere and build infrastructure that seemingly accomplishes the same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have to say, then, given what both of you have said, I'm having difficulty understanding what the actual threat is. What is the threat that Washington is perceiving? Because, you know, as Nicole said earlier, these are really complex systems and that, you know, perhaps maybe the the headlines and the quotes are oversimplifying the situation. I mean, we're reading articles where analysts are saying, and you heard one clip at the top of the show, that, uh, you know, could China uh, reroute traffic uh, being carried on, you know, on these particular cables, or could they... Um, I don't know, engage in some kind of espionage. I mean, Joe, I'd like to hear from you on this. Do you think those threats are legitimate or are they also oversimplified? I think the threats are legitimate. I think the means by which individuals and and the U.S. specifically addresses those, it's complicated. So there is fear of espionage, of cyber attacks, of cable tapping, but, but there so far have been very few straightforward examples, at least that we know of. Um, Nowadays, there are advanced technological systems that work remotely, that use artificial intelligence. These advances in tech can provide some vulnerabilities, however, that have to do with cable security. 
Um, there was an instance in 2023 in February where cables were cut off the coast of Taiwan. Taiwan assumed that China had taken these steps, um, and it really restricted internet access for a lot of folks. Um, also in 2022, Homeland Security thwarted a potential attack to a carrier that has not yet been named in the Pacific Islands servicing Hawaii and Pacific regions. These sorts of activities aren't always privy to us. Uh, so it's uncertain exactly what the extent is, but the threat, I feel, is still very much prevalent. Okay. Nicole, did you want to respond to that? I agree with what Joe Joe's assessment of the situation. It's really, there, there is a threat, but I think that the, the amount of attention uh, focused on this threat doesn't take into account the complexity of the systems and the actual operations um, that they, the actual operations of the, the, the companies who own them and, and supply them. Mm. You know, I'm seeing here regarding specifically the concern about HMN tech uh, is that you know, the United States, Washington specifically, uh, fears that um, China's advance into fiber optic cabling, undersea cabling, I mean, I'm seeing the phrase, it could be a Trojan horse for military and economic expansion because the Chinese government itself has said HMN Tech is a, quote, model of civil military integration and that uh, the company will offer powerful support for the modernization of our country's national defense. Uh, Joe Keller, how do you read that? I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. The, the U.S. really wants to avoid both direct and indirect association with China around telecommunications. They see any connection uh, as an opportunity for Beijing to influence and control that technology against the West, against the U.S. So this shared cable infrastructure, untrusted Chinese equipment, this could be at a risk of U.S. citizens' privacy. It could also be vulnerable to being intercepted by foreign intelligence agencies. So this rerouting, these blocking of cable projects, these are all steps to try to make sure uh, that there is not that threat doesn't get closer and closer. Um, and as we mentioned before, I think the threat as well of sanctions for other individuals, the ripple effect of what this does for other countries and companies that are involved in projects, the ripple effect in trying to chill. Uh, future collaboration at, at risk of sanctions and other measures that may not be economically viable. Hmm. Well, today we're trying to understand uh, the cause and the effects of the rising tensions between the United States and China over undersea fiber optic cable. Uh, some are calling it a new war under the waves. I'm joined by Joe Keller. He's a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology, and Nicole Staroselsky. She's a professor of media, culture, and communication at New York University and author of The Undersea Network. And we'll have more when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. 
As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and I want to take a moment to say a special welcome to listeners across Colorado and Utah, who, as of today, can hear On Point on Colorado Public Radio and on KUER in Utah. It's our first day on the air with you, and we are very honored to join you on the airwaves. So a big hello to everyone listening on CPR News and KRCC and on KUER in Utah. Um, And we're really glad to have you because I also want to let folks know that tomorrow we're going to be talking about higher ed, higher ed specifically in Florida, including a recent law signed by Governor Ron DeSantis. And it's a law that forbids public colleges from offering general ed classes that, quote, distort significant historical events or teach identity politics. So uh, if you're in Florida, we want to hear from you. If you're a a professor or an instructor at one of Florida's public colleges, what do you think about this new legislation? How will it change the way you teach? And same thing with college students. What do you think about the legislation? Will it change your classes um, or your university experience? So, And anyone else who's thinking about the world of higher ed and um, what governments want to require or not require they teach, let us know. Share your experience by recording a message in the On Point Vox Pop app. If you don't already have it, just go to wherever you get your apps and look for On Point Vox Pop. You can also leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. That's all for tomorrow. Today, we're trying to understand the causes and consequences of the rising tension between United the United States and China uh, regarding undersea fiber optic cables. So, Nicole, I want to shift our perspective here for a moment to, you know, the rest of the world. Um, What does this rising tension do in terms of potential impact on sort of Internet traffic or or other countries' um, ability to to access the Internet? What does it do, if anything, at all? So one of the things that this does... And the way that it's really significant is that China is producing, and HMN Tech is laying a competitor cable along the same route as CMUE 6, then you have a a sort of splintered uh, base uh, backbone of the internet infrastructure. And that might lead to uh, different territories being covered. It might lead to more coverage in some places. It might lead to a splintering of, you know, 
what land, you know, what countries end up aligning with which cables. Um, so there's a way that this this move away from a consortium kind of collective multi-stakeholder model to co- directly competing systems along geopolitical lines might force other countries to line up one way or the other. Oh, okay. Uh, Joe, what do you think about that? I agree. That is certainly a concern and a threat. You know, with the U.S. taking more steps to avoid Chinese telecom and then China responding in kind, you know, this has implications for all of us for the future of the Internet. It'll make any future products involving both the U.S. and China together very difficult. And as Nicole mentioned, this fragmentation of the Internet consolidating eventually perhaps Western ecosystem of internet led by the U.S. and an Eastern internet ecosystem led by China and perhaps others. You know, we already see that apps are blocked in other countries like China, for example, blocking Google and WhatsApp. So so this is a threat that happens and and the ripple effect is pretty significant, but some of it we're still seeing play out. Mm. Uh, Nicole, so I'm really intrigued by what you said. I mean, are you talking about the the potential um, of you know, alliances being a new form of international alliances uh, being created over uh, information and information access or Internet access? I think that there could be new alliances formed, especially over infrastructure access, which then kind of trickles down to information access. Because, you know, even though I think that these will remain uh, relatively open pipelines uh, where people can buy capacity uh, companies can buy capacity and send information, they do have significant effects for what gets transited and whose platforms and whose information is is transporting what uh, what lines. And so I, I believe if China moves forward with this competing project and you end up starting a new model for global internet infrastructure where there are different kind of competing systems, Chinese system, a US-based system, then you're going to see some some different alliances take hold. Well, I was seeing, um, you know, at the top of the show, I mentioned that um, the House had passed the Undersea Cable Control Act. um, And if that ends up becoming law, then that would prohibit the export of cable technologies and equipment to China, again, in an attempt to um, really... uh, curtail the ability for China and other foreign adversaries to build and operate subsea cables. I mean, that seems like it would further um, lead to this fragmentation that you're talking about of, I guess, the global um, internet ecosystem. I'm also wondering, and, and Joe, let me turn to you on this, it sounds like that would only deepen economic and political divides, you know, between not just the United States and China, but then their sort of um, ancillary allies as well. I think that sounds right. You know, this new bill is designed to undercut foreign cable construction abilities by adversaries, specifically calling out China on this. Um, it passed the House. It's expected to pass the Senate. There are there's bipartisan support around issues like this. Um, an export control mechanism keeps intellectual property, technology, anything that could help China advance their cable efforts, their cable ambitions coming from the U.S., there's a prohib- prohibition on that. Um, and it does 
have an impact on others. Uh, Canada, for example, is starting to take a new stance uh, towards China. So when we're thinking about the future and um, consolidation of alliances, um, bills like this, especially bills that perhaps haven't involved engagement with industry to a sufficient point, um, do have the possibility of creating a cascade of events leading towards that future. Mm. You know, I want to turn for a moment the mirror back on the United States, right? Because as we, you know, when we quote Washington, language coming out of Washington, it's very, very uh, bellicose against against Beijing. And the, the framing is that China is a threat to American economic and national security as it tries to expand, uh, you know, it, its technological prowess. Um, and we're talking about fears that Washington has about, you know, um, influence and espionage through these uh, potentially through these fiber optic cables. <laughs> I mean, if we look in the mirror, can we be sure that the United States has not exercised um, or done those same things that uh, we're accusing China of potentially being able to do, Joe? <laughs> we we may, may not be able to, to look in the mirror that clearly. I, I think <clears throat> at, the, at the beginning of Russia's invasion of UK, Ukraine, there was increased security concerns around from from NATO NATO countries, given that Russia in particular has this immense ability to conduct warfare on the seabed. I think these issues have always persisted. It's just part of it may be that the access and the understanding of their importance is increasing. But we're also seeing a lot of trends heading in one way that creates a lot more pressure around these issues. We have more reliance on cables. As Nicole mentioned, there's greater capacity for information to be transmitted, and we have uh, more tech vulnerabilities. These cables are a lot more important than they were several years ago. We've moved online uh, going with the COVID-19 pandemic. And so trying to think about how to approach diplomatic efforts around cables in this moment, I think, is perhaps different than it was, mm. say, 10 years ago. Mm. And, Nicole, the reason why I ask this is because in in talking about the United States and China, we're talking about increasingly, you know, um, a, a symmetry of power, essentially. And I just, I guess I'm saying I don't doubt for a second that if indeed there were to be, like, say, God forbid this ever happens, but a hot war between the United States and China, you know, I I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that the U.S. would cut cables as part of the information war aspect of um, conflict with China. And I mean, first of all, what do you think about that? So I think that that while that's certainly possible, I think that if the U.S. cut cables, it's it's also possible that that would damage the U.S as much as China, um, you know, like uh, the, the question of who, whose platforms, whose systems, whose economy is dependent on these cables and in what ways are they dependent on these cables? You have to look at where the internet content is housed, you know, where financial transactions are transiting. So there are all these sorts of factors that, that mean that, you know, if we were to cut our our own cables, it's hard. Firstly, it's hard to say, that any cable is simply a U.S. cable right. because the cables are international. So when you cut cables, you're cutting cables between two countries or two places. So if you cut the transatlantic cables between the U.S. and the U.K. or the U.S. and Europe, then that's going to hurt the U.S. 
it's going to hurt Europe, right? It's going to hurt the connections between those locations. So the question is, you know, can that traffic then be rerouted the other way around the world? You know, where is the real impact going to be felt? I don't think that the U.S. going on a, a cable cutting spree against China or this one, you know, Chinese cable um, is is the. I wouldn't say that I would place that again. Not being a strict strategy expert here, but I wouldn't place that in the top. Concerns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, point taken. So let's look at a little bit more uh, closely of a near term consequences. Uh, uh, Joe, because I, what comes to mind is the sort of above ground uh, analogy of China's Belt and Road project, right? Uh, and in creating infrastructure uh, in countries that were struggling to create it by themselves. And, and, you know, specifically, let's, you know, looking at Africa. Lots of Africa, much of Africa wants internet infrastructure. And um, these kinds of undersea cables are, are critical uh, to carrying that that additional traffic. How do, do the tensions between the United States uh, and China about seafloor cables, how do they impact places like, you know, African nations? What's happening in the global south and particularly the African continent, you know, is really important. With rapid investments uh, of things like cables, of things like data centers, things that provide tech infrastructure, these are essential aspects to digital transformation, to uh, to livelihoods, to life. Uh, but it also attracts geopolitical competition, namely from the U.S., from China, and from Russia. China has been, though, historically, the builder of Africa's digital future. Um, And the U.S. sees that as a potential threat, seeing that increasing reliance on China, both in terms of economics and in terms of infrastructure and debt, may cultivate this dependence that can be translated into political leverage. Um, And so the U.S. is trying the best it can to repair broken relationships with this fear in mind. Um, I think, however, it's very important for Africa in particular, to take part in these advancements. It's critical to the emergence of uh, the future of emerging technologies. Um, And so even though these geopolitical issues are taking place between the U.S. and China, they also take place around the world. Hmm. You know, if Washington is fearful of Chinese influence because China has been building uh, and providing uh, critical infrastructure in places like Africa, the fear exists because the United States for 20 years, has not been doing the same. I mean, I would say that the chickens come home to roost when uh, countries make decisions like you know, going to war for 20 years in Afghanistan or Iraq versus um, exerting soft power through helping create infrastructure um, on other continents. But, you know, I guess as we, as we round the corner here to, to the end of the conversation, I also want to ask if it's possible to view this situation uh, about undersea fiber optics through any other framework than the zero-sum game framework, right? Like we've been talking about this as if, you know, as China um, grows its influence in this kind of Internet infrastructure, the United States has, stands, to, stands to lose something. Is that the wrong Framework Could it be something other than um, endless competition to the detriment of one country um, over another? Nicole? I think that there's actually a, a much better framework to look at this. And it's looking at the subsea cable industry itself. It's a really unique global industry and in that you have collaborators working and who have worked together for decades. 
um, to build these systems together, unlikely allies in so many ways uh, between the different nations to stitch together this global ecosystem. And that's by and large worked pretty well to bring us to the internet infrastructure that we have today. And China and Chinese companies have been a part of those consortiums and have been a part of those negotiations. So the norm is not this, you know, zero sum game. That's something that's that's happening now in a more intense way than it ever has before. And in part because of the way that uh, governments are sort of stepping in and and expressing preferences and uh, dealing with these negotiations. I think that taking that collaborative approach and looking to the industry and how the industry has functioned is is the way to go. Mm. Well, Joe Keller, last minute goes to you. Zero sum game or not? <laughs> I think it's it's complicated. I agree with Nicole. But I, I think there's an opportunity to to do some work at home. What's necessary is there needs to be more interaction and collaboration between U.S. security officials and government officials around cables, along with U.S. partners in industry, those that have significant expertise in engineering and planning of cables and laying of cable fires, I think, uh, cable routes. These partnerships, I think, will be critical to shoring up processes at home, which could perhaps make for better collaboration and productivity in this global network because at the moment there seems to be not a way around working with others. This is a repeated conclusion that we come to when we do shows about the United States and China, that part of the long-term solution is improving our politics and processes here in the United States. So once again, (laughs) that's where we land. Joe Keller, visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution Center for Security, Strategy and Technology. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Nicole Staroselsky, professor of media, culture and communication at New York University and author of The Undersea Network. Professor Staroselsky, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.